We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. This is part seven uh, in this series. And um, remember, I don't know how many parts this series will end up having, but we know we're going to get through this book. Um, And so here we are. And just to recap a little bit, um, Acts 1, we talked about how the the people of God, it's about learning to wait on God and how learning to wait uh, forms us into the people of God. And there's, there's something about becoming uh, before we even go on mission with God. And sometimes we want to run to mission. God, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? And a lot of times what God first says to us is, well, wait. And wait with others so you recognize that you're not alone. And wait for me so you recognize that you can't do this on your own. And then in Acts 2, we talked about this great day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit gets poured out. But Pentecost is not about giving us private, ecstatic, spiritual experiences It's about God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit coming upon us to help us proclaim Jesus. Then the week after that, we we looked further in Acts 2 and we talked about Peter's sermon. And we said, look, here's here's this guy, Peter, who just a few weeks earlier denied Christ to a servant girl, now is preaching with boldness in front of this congregation, this ad hoc congregation. And he declares that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, which we unpacked that, that what that really means there is he's saying Jesus is the sovereign one and Jesus is the saving one. And then we looked at the latter part, the end of Acts 2, where they began to devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And so we talked about these meal groups that we're about to launch this summer. And we talked about why from time to time we'll pray a prayer or even follow loosely the calendar that the church has followed for centuries because what that acts like is it acts like a tether that keeps us connected to the story. And we use the visual of the, the old Midwest farmers. You may have seen the episode of Little House on the Prairie where he ties a rope from the house all the way to the barn on a, on a Christmas day and he goes out kind of hanging on to the rope so he doesn't get lost. And Ma's worried about Pa because you know how these blizzards are. And, and, uh, and, and, and the creeds and the confessions of the church are like a rope that tethers us back to the narrative, reminds us that we're not making stuff up as we go along and helps us not to. And, uh, and then we talked about Acts 3, where Peter and John announced healing to the crippled man, and we wrestled with miracles, and how do we think about miracles? Does God heal? Does God not heal? And the, the, the discomfort of living in this tension of, yes, He does, and still what's coming is better than even what could be now. And then we talked about last week with Matthew Ayers I was preaching up at the North Campus, missed all of you dearly. Um, but last week was Acts 4, where we talked about the church's first encounter with opposition and 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 we maybe unpacked why the rulers were so unsettled and we're gonna we're gonna see those same rulers the Sadducees surface in this week's talk and so we'll get to rehash some of those points of why these guys were so threatened by Peter and John but here we are in Acts 5 and the story continues the church is beginning to really face more opposition now why is Luke telling us so much about this The tradition goes that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and likely this was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so what began as a few pockets of Jewish followers of Jesus, eventually they become dispersed into different small little struggling congregations all around the Asia Minor region. And so when Luke's writing this down, he's likely thinking of these little congregations that are facing opposition where they are for the first time. And so Luke's kind of saying maybe... We need to write down some of these stories so we can remind people that following Jesus is going to meet with resistance. And in, in a very real way, that's the same reason we're studying it. 
we look at Acts 5 today, it's really not that different from our world. Have you ever begun down a course to follow God? And you say, you know what, because I'm following Jesus, I'm going to make decisions differently over here and decisions differently over here. And then instead of encountering blessing, you've encountered opposition. Has that ever happened? I think it's interesting because we're blessed to live in a nation that affords us with a lot of freedom and, and so you can, you can make an economically sustainable life in a number of different ways. There's all kinds of interesting careers, and you can make a career out of buying stuff cheap and then selling it high on eBay. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of, of, of making a living. But I think because of that, we sort of tend to expect that life is always just going to work out, that following God is always just going to keep getting better and better. I mean, honestly, if Luke was a good storyteller, he would have ended at the end of Acts 4. Because Acts 4 says, and the church began to sell their possessions and give to one another so that no one was in need. And the church lived happily ever after the end. But Luke doesn't end there. And thank God he doesn't end there because you and I would say, Luke, you're a liar. (laughs) That's not how life is. But growing up in this culture where sort of with affluence and with money and stuff, we tend to sort of believe that life will always work out. I, I deliberately chose uh, Jeremiah for our Old Testament reading this morning because if you read Jeremiah 20 in the message translation, it's especially striking because God says, He says, hey, all you false prophets who preach your sermon that everything's going to work out, and Eugene puts it in quotes, you know, Eugene Peterson. And, and then he says, and your other famous sermon that says nothing bad will ever happen to you. And God says, who gave you that? Where would you come up with that idea? Are you even listening to me? But those were what the preachers in Jeremiah's day were saying. He's like, wait wait a minute, Jeremiah's day? How about our day? I think we've all heard those sermons that say, follow Jesus and nothing bad will ever happen to you. Follow Jesus and everything will work out okay. The only person who didn't make those kinds of promises was Jesus. And so the church runs up against opposition and realizes that following Jesus creates some resistance and creates some friction. Relationships are being strained. And Jeremiah, he finds himself saying, back in his day, he finds himself saying, God, you tricked me. Now, Joanna read the scripture and she's got such a nice, sweet voice that you maybe missed it, but she says, oh God, you have deceived me. I, I, I don't think Jeremiah, right now, I, I think if we were to really hear it, he would have been saying, God, you tricked me. That's a heck of a thing to say to God. But you've been there, haven't you? You've been in those moments, haven't you, where life just begins to unravel and you're thinking, whoa, 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 what happened to our deal? Why? I'm following you. This is not... To... And there's really, there's really, there's many ways of thinking about suffering. Part of the suffering that we, occur, we experience in, in the world is because the world is broken and there's fallenness all around. But this is a particular kind of suffering that we're going to talk about this morning. It's the suffering that happens specifically because you're going the opposite way. It's not a suffering that happens because you live in a fallen world and there's sickness. And it's a suffering specifically that results from moving in the opposite direction than the world. 
Choosing to forgive when everyone else clings on to hate. Choosing to spend your money differently when people say you should spend it this way. Choosing to go this way instead of that way. Choosing to call out injustices when others would want to turn a blind eye. Choosing not to cut corners when everyone else is doing. Choosing to go against the grain of the way of the world doesn't always work out in this life. Doesn't always work out in this age. And these, my, I suspect that these young congregations that Luke is writing to are experiencing that firsthand. Things could work out a lot better if they would just do this and do this and hail Caesar or do this. But it's not happening. So the first story that Luke tells us in this chapter, and here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do this morning in Acts 5. There's so many amazing parts of this that I'll read the first few verses of it and then I'll kind of narrate the rest of the chapter and then we'll pick up the way the chapter ends. Uh, and and I, wish the, I wish Jim at the back there on the slides the best of luck um, keeping up. But, but, to, but I want us to kind of see in a macro view what Luke is doing with this, stories, with this set of stories. So he finishes Acts 4 and he says, look... Everybody, you know, share, people sold their possessions and no one had any lack. And then all of a sudden, Acts 5 opens with however a man named Ananias along with his wife, Sapphira. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Scene 1, an internal crisis. Meet Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. And he brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. And Peter asked, <laughs> I love this, Ananias, how is it that Satan has influenced you to, to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? I mean, could you imagine this? It's like the move the mountain offering and someone's coming up to like put a check in and the pastor says, Satan? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, um, you could say thank you. <laughs> Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with whatever you wanted? This, by the way, as a short aside here, is a, um, a, a maybe corrective to the notion we sometimes have that the early church um, had no property ownership or that it was sort of all kind of a communist or socialist sort of thing. And that, you know, I, I think what Peter is saying is, look, it was yours to keep when you sold it. The money was still yours to keep. Nobody's making you give up anything. That wasn't part of the arrangement. But people were so moved by love that they chose to give up stuff. But what, he's, what Peter's saying to Ananias is, you didn't have to tell us that you were giving all when you didn't. And then he goes on and he says, you, why, what would make you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Oh my Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified, you think? Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife entered, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. Dun, dun, dun. And Peter asked her, tell me, this is Peter, just playing coy, tell me, did you and your husband receive this price for the field? What did you get for that land you sold? She responded, oh yes, that's the amount. And he replied, how could you scheme with each other to challenge the Lord's Spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out too. At that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men entered and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her with her husband. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. This seems like such a strange story. <laughs> and there was a tiny part of me that wanted to skip right over it for today's text. 
But we can't. I think this story, Luke includes this story almost as a cautionary tale for us to beware that we've got God all figured out. Sometimes we sort of imagine, well, God will never do that. God is just, he's syrupy, he's sweet, he's sentimental, he's sappy. God wouldn't do that, would he? I mean, post-Jesus, post-cross and resurrection, that's Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, God doesn't do it. Yes, he does. And maybe what we're uncomfortable with is we'd like to think that there's this Old Testament God and he's a certain way and then everything sort of changes with Jesus and God went to anger management classes and he stopped being so mad all the time. And he's much better now. But both views are a distortion because the Old Testament God is not primarily a God of wrath. Even in the Old Testament we are told God is a love. He's abounding in compassion. In, 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 uh, I think it's in Lamentations, it, it says, I, I'm reluctant to get angry. The way the Old Testament describes God is anger is on the outer edges of, of His personality. He, his, at His core, He is love, but He does get angry because He is love. But then sometimes in the New Testament, we want to stress so much that He's just so loving and He's just so nice that you forget that He's still holy and sovereign and Lord. And maybe it's these stories in the Scripture are kind of like many tracks of a song in a mixing studio. I know there's only a few of us that can picture this visual. But picture a mixing studio with like 24 different tracks of a song. And some of these storytellers will say, let's fade up the bass here. Boom, 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 boom. You're like, woohoo! But if you, you know, then another storyteller says, let's kind of fade in the electric guitar here. What's God like? Different storytellers are mixing different accents of who He is. And so we are to be very careful of saying, I know what God's like, and God would never, and God will not. And Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, did you really think you could get away with this? Who did you think you were dealing with? But the real issue here is not a lack of generosity, is it? It's a lack of honesty. And maybe why Luke includes this story is because Luke understands for these young congregations, if there's one thing that will ruin a good young congregation, it's a lack of honesty. What erodes at the community? What erodes at a community of the people of God? When we start lying to one another. When there's no more honesty. When it starts to become... We're hiding and we're holding something back and maybe I just want to fit in so much and I want everyone to see that I'm happy, that I'm good, that I've got it together and here I'm giving everything to God when the truth is we're not. If church is going to be church, it's got to begin with a certain level of honesty of saying, yeah, I'm kind of holding this back, but I'm giving this. Okay, well that's great. Let's start there. I mean, there's a certain level of honesty that, that without it, the community begins to break down. But here's why this scene one is significant in this chapter. Up until this point, the church has only met opposition from the outside. Now we've got trouble from within. Now we've got something infecting from within. Well, that's just the, the killer about this whole thing, isn't it? It's one thing to be said, 
that we're the people of God and we're trying to follow God all together and we come to church and we love one another until somebody tries to cheat you or take advantage of you or be dishonest to you and hurt you. And then all of a sudden you say, what? In the church too? I thought it was just from outside. I could handle it if it's the world, but why from within? Because there's foolishness even within. But the story, the chapter keeps pacing on and Luke tells us all of a sudden in this great sequence of miracles and there's tremendous, there's this, there's this moment where everyone who's sick gets healed and there's this part where even Peter's shadow kind of walks, moves by people and people get healed. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. And maybe this is Luke's way of saying to us, guys, there's trouble from within, but God is still at work. God is still in this. Don't get too discouraged. God is still in this. Look, there were signs and there were wonders. Have you ever been following along a certain way and it was hardship after hardship after hardship, you know, and all of a sudden there's this one moment you say, look at that person's life that was saved. Look at that person's story that was changed. These miracle moments that kind of remind us God is still up to something. We may be going the wrong way by the world's standards, but God is going this way too. And then Acts 5 continues and they meet external opposition. Scene 3 is more opposition, but this time from the outside, just like it was in Acts 4. And what roughly happens is the Sadducees and these rulers, they, they call Peter and John in and they've already you know, tried to arrest them once and now they're really going to do it and they put them in prison. And they put him in prison, but all of a sudden, lo and behold, an angel comes and frees them from prison. He says, guys, what are you doing in prison? They're like, well, the, the rulers, you know, but, but, well, you're supposed to be in the temple preaching. Okay, so they get freed and they wait in the middle of the night and they stand at the temple and then at daybreak, they begin preaching at the temple. This is an amazing scene. And then the next scene is kind of like a comedy scene. If you can imagine the bumbling criminal, you know, the bumbling bad guy sort of stereotype. These guys are like, hey. Where's Peter and John the next morning? Let's go get Peter and John. Where are the prisoners? I haven't seen them. Have you seen them? I thought you had them. Let's go ask the guards. Guards, we got them. They're in here. They're in the back. Where are they? Let's get them. They're not in there. Where are they? I don't know. And all of a sudden, someone runs in and says, Peter and John, they're preaching at the temple. The temple, they're supposed to be at the prison. What are they doing over there? It's almost comical. Luke is making these rulers out to look like fools. The people who thought they were ruling the world. Look like a bunch of bumbling guys who can't even keep a prisoner in prison. But who are the Sadducees? Who are these guys? They are descendants in, from, from the Maccabeans and they didn't believe, they weren't looking for a Messiah because they believed He'd already come. And Sadducees were a sect of the Jews that, that, that um, included the high priest and his family. These were people, let's put it this way, these were people that ran the temple that were in charge of the religious establishment, but that's not it, that's not all. They had made an alliance with Rome to kind of say, hey, let us rule our religious sphere, give us the muscle, the Roman guards, to police it, and then as we extort people and, uh, and charge unfair tithes and things like that, we'll give you a cut of the money. This was church and state joined together for the sake of economic gain and, and the illusion of control. Now, that we could never imagine what that would be like. 
But that's the situation of the Sadducees. That's the situation of these guys who in God's name began to say, and this is why they kept the crippled man outside the temple because these guys are running the temple and if you're crippled since birth, you don't belong. You're not good enough. You don't, you don't fit the description. The rulers of this world gain power by excluding others. It's like high school. The popular kids stay popular by saying who's not popular. That's all these guys are doing. It's high school all over again. They're saying, look, we're in charge. And we boost up our power by saying, who's not? And you're not, and you're not, and you're not, and you're not, and you're not. That's, that's, that's the oldest trick in the book. That's what religious leaders do. And Peter and John are breaking all the rules all of a sudden. They're announcing healing to a crippled man. They're allowing him to worship in the temple. Now, wait a second. I think what you have to realize is being part of the church is going to result in you cutting across socially defined categories. Being part of the people of God means cutting across the categories that the power brokers of the world make up. Well, no, you see, this is only for, you know, male or female, or this is only for this race or that race. Oh, well, you see, this is only for people with this kind of money. Well, well, you see, this is only for this. And the followers of Jesus stand up and say, no! All of these circles that we're so used to drawing between us and them get redrawn around Jesus. And that's what this first church, when, when, you, when you say, why were they encountering opposition from the world? Why? Why were they meeting with opposition from the, from, from the power brokers of the world? It's not because Christianity, it's not because Rome was a secular state. You know that, right? Rome was not like the old Soviet Union or North Korea where they were anti-religious. Rome was pluralistic. They loved religions. So why not Christianity? Because these followers of Jesus were making a very dangerously politically subversive claim. They were saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. They were saying, the gig is up. You don't get to run the world. I think that's what the church does, is we find the people who, like the crippled man, are kept outside the temple by the system, by the power brokers of the world, and we reach down and we look them in the eye and we say, look, they're not in charge. Jesus is. And in Jesus' name, rise and walk. And so they meet this opposition from the Sadducees because they feel threatened. They don't like it. All of a sudden, from within, the sad, within this group, there's a Pharisee named Gamaliel. He's an unlikely advocate. Gamaliel is this guy that all of a sudden they're, they're about to kind of really you know, tighten, up, tighten in on Peter and John. And Gamaliel says, hey guys, hang on, hang on. Remember there was another person who said that he was the Messiah and he had 400 followers and then he was killed and the followers were dispersed, nothing happened to it? Yeah, you know how like Jesus was crucified but his followers seemed to be only getting stronger? Yeah, maybe we should let this play out because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. Right? So, an unlikely advocate. Here's what I want us to see. It would be so much easier if we could look at Acts 5 and say, good guys are the church and the poor and the crippled, and bad guys are the rulers and the ones with money and power. But the Bible refuses to let us draw lines so simply. 
Because within the church, you find an evil couple. And within the rulers, you find a wise man. So wait a minute, Glenn, that's just too confusing. I just need to know who's the, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And the Jesus revolution says, it's not that easy. And the Jesus way says, sometimes you're going to find foolishness within and wisdom without. Sometimes you're going to find help in unexpected places. I think the challenge for us is we live in a world that is very much defined by names. We are name people. We like to name our tribe. We like to name our people. Oh, I'm a this guy. I'm Chipotle, not Qdoba. I'm Cold Stone, not Maggie Moo's. I like ice cream. I like it all. We're names people. But you discover very early on in the book of Acts that to be called by Jesus' name means you can't let other people put their names on you. It doesn't work. It's not so simple as saying, oh, well, to, you see, to belong to Jesus means we belong to this party. This is my cause. This is our guy. Everybody wants to put a name on you. The Sadducees were all about it. Are you us or are you them? And Peter and John said, we're with Jesus. So wait a minute. And that means sometimes you'll speak for that. And sometimes you'll speak for that. And sometimes you'll say that's wrong. And sometimes you'll say that's wrong. And sometimes you'll speak in different ways because... Jesus is the name above every name. So then all of a sudden, the world can't stick categories on you. But it'd be much easier if I could. But you're, you're, you're this, right? Aren't you this? I'm not this. But here's what begins to happen. If you really do live that way, if you reject the names that the world tries to put on you, you know what they'll then start to do? They'll label you with a different name. Oh, well, you're just... A heretic, or you're just radical, you're a liberal, you're a this. I want to challenge you to take seriously what it means to follow Jesus. To take seriously what it means to follow Jesus above every other ruler, above every other name. You will not always fall cleanly along the lines that society has its wars and cultures and struggles. And maybe one of the reasons the church doesn't face as much opposition from the world is because we too happily wear one side's label. I just went with, of course this is right. And all in the meantime, we're, there's something else over here that we should... Peter and John kind of stand up and they say, look guys, Rome, the temple, none of y'all. We're with Jesus. We're Jesus people. The church is not defined by the name of a nation. The church is not marked by a race, by economic status, by geographic location. It's not marked by a party or a campaign or a cause. It's marked by one king and one king alone, and his name is Jesus. And when you live that way, it's much more difficult because you'll find Gamaliel. I thought the Sadducees, I thought these whole guys were all bad guys. Why is there an advocate from them? It becomes much more nuanced and much more difficult and you have to 
listen to actual individuals and learn their stories and actually hear them out. <gasps> and you start to live this way, you will begin to find that you're suffering. And so in Acts 5, verse 40, it says this, and after calling the apostles back, they had them beaten. They knew they couldn't keep them in jail, so they were going to whoop them. And they did. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And the apostles left the council rejoicing because they had been regarded as worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of the name. That's amazing to me. Regarded as worthy to... Praising God because they've been regarded as worthy to suffer disgrace. Every day they continue to teach and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ, both in the temple and in houses. Ananias and Sapphira, they're trying to gain an artificially good reputation by appearing to give all their money. The Sadducees, they're trying to prop up their good reputation with all the controlling instincts they have. The apostles, they say, reputation? I gave that up a long time ago. I don't need it. It doesn't matter. In fact, if we're being disgraced and shamed, we praise God. Because now we're being counted worthy to suffer. This is what I mean. When you refuse the labels of the world, they'll throw different ones on there to disgrace you and shame you. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Oh, you don't fit here. Oh, you don't do this. Oh, you don't do that. Oh, you don't. And all along we keep walking. We say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm walking in the same narrow way that you walked. Thank you, Jesus, that you've counted us worthy to suffer disgrace, shame. Not leveraging to gain a reputation, but thanking God that disgrace has come. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine that. Two things as we close. When we suffer for the name of Jesus, Remember that God is still at work. I think the way Luke weaves these stories is the reality of the opposition, but the encouragement of hope. Oh, here's Ananias and Sapphira lying from within the church. Oh my goodness. Oh, but miracles are still happening. God is still at work. Here's opposition from the Sadducees, but here's a voice of reason, of wisdom here from Gamaliel. God is still at work. Here's the apostles being beaten but they leave praising God. When you suffer shame for the name of Jesus, remember that God is still at work. Sometimes I, uh, sometimes I dread being at pastor's conferences or worship conferences. Don't tell the people who invite me that I dread that because then they'll stop inviting me, but... Just kidding. But sometimes I... I'm uncomfortable in it because we assume that the ones who have fame are the ones who are faithful. But in Acts, the ones who have shame are the ones who are being faithful. Now, I, I like management stuff. I got my master's in management because I got burned out about theology guys arguing over little things. But I've become very wary of 
management metrics being used to measure the church. I've become very weary of that. Because how do you measure that God is really still at work? What's that metric? How do you clarify that win? Most of what we do as the people of God is difficult to squash into a glossy 60-second testimony video. Because we don't know how it's going to turn out. How, how are things going to turn out for Peter and John? We don't know. Keep reading. But then Acts kind of ends and Paul is in this sort of house arrest and is preaching. And How does this whole thing end? I mean, Jesus will reign. But you can't force these management metrics onto the church and say, this guy is successful. It's difficult in America because we love success. We love big. We love flashy. And we love the pragmatic. Whatever works, baby. And all along the way, we are being reminded that to follow Jesus means to shed that way of thinking. And to say that sometimes following Jesus is going to mean that you, sh- you suffer the shame of disgrace. But be of good cheer. God is still at work. God is still at work. My parents are here. They flew in last night. They'll be here the next two Sundays. My dad is here. My mom is here. I, I learned this by watching them. Because you won't read about their church in any magazine or blog or website. They'll never be invited to speak at a church growth conference or a strategic missions conference as wonderful as all of that is. Sometimes you're doing the work of God and all you meet with is resistance. But there are these little stories along the way that remind you. Remember that family? Just last night, let me tell you this story about this family or this thing. And there are these little signs along the way that say, you know what? God is still at work. Doesn't have all the signs the world recognizes, but God's still at work. Secondly, when you suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Remember that you're in good company. You're in good company. You're not the first. You won't be the last. All the prophets who have gone before us, Jeremiah who accused God of tricking him included, And Jesus Himself. Sometimes we want to emphasize, I know Jesus in His victory and His triumph. Paul also prayed that we would know Jesus in the fellowship of His sufferings. A lot of preachers want to tell you how to be a champion, how you're destined to reign. We'll let God make them account. I'm going to preach the Word of God to you. And what it means is following Jesus will sometimes cause you to suffer the shame of disgrace. But remember, when you do, you are with Jesus Himself in that moment. 
You're not just numbered with the prophets and with Peter and John, as wonderful as that is. You are identifying in that moment with Christ Himself, the crucified one. And that, church, is why we can rejoice. Because God has counted you worthy of this. God has said, that shame, that disgrace, that feeling of being a misfit in this world because you won't wear anybody's label fully, congratulations. You are now with Jesus. Maybe this morning as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, we begin by imagining if we really are like Ananias and Sapphira, that we want so desperately to belong in the church, everybody's giving stuff, hey, let's do a tube, only let's not. That maybe we live a life of dishonesty even in church because we're trying to be somewhere. Friend, if that's you, this morning it begins by confessing that. Saying, God, I have, I have a bit of Ananias and Sapphira in me. I'm a bit of a, I'm a, bit of a deceiver. I'm trying to get everybody to think I'm better than I am. But I'm not. Maybe there's a bit of Sadducee in you. And you're the kind of person that you really want to hang on to the world as you knew it. And you're going to fight this culture war in God's name, doggone it. And who cares who we keep on the outside? Maybe you need to see that Jesus says that's not His way. The way of Jesus is not the way of fighting a culture war. The way of Jesus is the way of shame. Because you're walking with not the powerful, but with the weak and the broken. That's going to get you in some trouble. That's going to make you some unhappy fellow Christian friends. Maybe we need to confess that. We're tempted to be like Sadducees, controllers. Cheaters and controllers. God bless you. Have a good lunch. (laughs) This is why we end our sermons by coming to the table of the Lord. Because the good news is that even though we are cheaters and controllers, Jesus is counting us worthy to belong to Him. And so as we come, take a moment here and be still and let the Holy Spirit convict you. We're going to deeply confess you're quietly right where you are and then we'll pray a prayer of confession together as we get ready to come to the table.